All right, well, we continue our sermon series on the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are, of course, about one of the Bible's biggest rebuilds. Can you guys think of any time that you took on a big rebuilding project? And do you guys ever get discouraged when you take on a big rebuilding project? If you're anything like me, rebuilds can be discouraging. I find myself thinking thoughts like, I just don't have the time and energy to rebuild something just to get it back to the point it used to be at. For some reason, rebuilding things is often discouraging to me. Of course, history is filled with inspirational examples of things that had to be rebuilt and ended up getting rebuilt far better than they had previously been. Let me start off with just a couple quick examples. On August 24th, 1814, the White House was destroyed by British soldiers. It was actually burned to the ground. And it was, a devasta- it was devastating that the symbol of our government was just char and ash. But when the War of 1812 ended in 1815, the White House was completely rebuilt, and it was an inspirational symbol of America's resiliency. And the building itself was better and more modern and bigger and stronger than it had ever been before. How about this? On October 18, 1900, an inventor named Wilbur Wright was conducting a series of experiments in North Carolina on a glider that he had constructed. Suddenly, a gust of unexpected wind pulled his glider about 50 feet into the air and dropped it right on its side, totally ruining his glider before he was done running his experiments on it. Wilbur would have to go all the way back to Ohio to construct a new glider, but his new airship included a horizontal and a vertical tailpiece, which the first one did not. And these new, innova- these new innovations were essential to leading to the Wright brothers' first manned aircraft. Like it needed to be rebuilt. It needed to be version 2.0 to actually be successful. And how about a final example? Vinny Pazienza was an up-and-coming boxer in the late 1980s. He was actually only the second fighter to win both the lightweight and the junior middleweight titles. But on November 19, 1991, he was riding in a car on some Rhode Island back roads and he got hit head-on by a semi-truck while he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. He suffered one dislocated vertebrae and two completely fractured vertebrae. He was placed in one of those, do you remember from the 1980s, those huge immobilizing halos for several months. The doctor told him it was a miracle, he wasn't paralyzed, and he would never box again. Vinny had to completely rebuild the movement and the strength in his neck, in his chest, in his shoulders. And he, against doctor's orders, returned to the ring only 13 months after his accident. And Vinny Pazienza would fight professionally 23 more times and win the title three more times with a rebuilt body. All this to say rebuilding often feels demoralizing, that we've got to start from scratch to do something that we had previously had or taken for granted. Of course, history is filled with inspirational examples of things that were actually rebuilt far better than they were in their first stage. The Bible is filled with inspirational examples of things that were rebuilt better than they were in their initial status as well. This afternoon, we continue our study of the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were originally just one 
story, so we'll just kind of treat them as one story. And it's the historical retelling of when God, God's people, rebuilt Jerusalem. And so I'd like to continue our study in two parts. Uh, I hope you grabbed a bulletin when you walked in, and you can follow along with uh, some, some sermon notes that are inside the bulletin. And I just, today I just want to talk about three, uh, two quick and hopefully encouraging things. Number one, I just want to review the what and the when and the where of the exile, because that's just not a story that everybody might be familiar with. So let's familiarize ourselves with what the exile is very, very quickly. And number two, let's focus in on what God rebuilt better and stronger through the exile and hopefully get some uh, encouragement as to what God might intend to rebuild better and stronger within our spiritual lives after this difficult year that we've gone through. Now that the pandemic is over, there is a lot to be rebuilt. Our economy, many of our relationships, perhaps our spiritual habits. So let's look at this story in Scripture for encouragement and guidance as we look how we can rebuild both our individual spiritual habits as well as the health of Big Sky Christian Fellowship. So section one. Let's just super quick talk about what story we're talking about and what does this mean when we talk about the exile. It goes like this. In March of 697 B.C., the country, the, uh, the country of Babylon, which is a, a former culture located in modern-day Iraq, attacked Israel and burned Jerusalem and displaced thousands of its citizens. So that's what we're talking about when we say the exile. God's people were in the promised land. They were in the borders of modern-day Israel. But God allowed this, this uh, empire of Babylon to burn Jerusalem to the ground and displace thousands of Israelites who lived inside of Israel. And if you're like me, the, the question that pops into your mind even more than just the history and the dates and that type of thing is why? If the early story of the Old Testament is God bringing his people into the promised land, why would he ever allow them to be defeated and displaced? And this really is one of the large questions of the Old Testament. I think one of our best examples comes from before the people were even in the promised land. So if you guys would, please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I'd like to read verses 25 and 26. And as we look for the answer of why God would allow his people to be driven into exile, we have to point out that this was something that God had warned would happen long ago. And our answer comes in Deuteronomy 4, 25 and 26, and it says this, After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol and do evil in the eyes of the Lord your God, you'll arouse his anger. And I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you'll quickly perish from the land that you're crossing over the Jordan to possess. And you'll not live there long and you'll certainly be destroyed. In other words, God's people possessing the promised land was conditional. It was what we would call a relational covenant. And if that seems a little bit foreign, if you really think about a lot of the relationships that we have, they're conditional. They're covenant, okay? If you have a library card, that's kind of a relational covenant 
that you're not going to be a book burner, right? Or a, a book hater. You're going to take care of those books that you check out. If you have a membership up at the resort, there's expectations that you're going to behave a certain way when you're at the club. If you're employed, you have expectations from your employer and there's things that you expect from him or her. And if you're in a marriage, there's things that you and your spouse expect from one another. This is just another way of saying that the relationships that we're in come with mutual expectations. And this, these verses from Deuteronomy 4 explain the covenant or the relational expectations that God's people were expected to maintain. He was about to bring them into the promised land. He was going to make them successful. They were going to thrive. But there were a couple things they had to do. They had to abstain from worshiping idols. They had to practice justice. And they had to do their best to follow the law. These rules that God had given them in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and the first couple books of the Bible. So that's the answer to why the exile happened. God's people broke the covenant and God always follows through with what he says. So the exile occurred. He allowed Babylon to drive the Israelites out. And then this is kind of where our story in Ezra and Nehemiah resumes because around somewhere between 450 and 400 B.C., the, the, the empire of Persia now defeated Babylon. So now they're in charge of the whole Far East. And they kind of had a different policy with the people that they oppressed and overtook. They allowed these displaced people to go back into their countries and to operate it basically as they wanted to, so long as they were still politically loyal. So our story in Ezra and Nehemiah that we're going to be talking about today and the next two weeks, this is exactly when it starts. Persia is now in charge of the Far East, and they are allowing the Israelites to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. They're allowed to rebuild their faith community. And I hope a light bulb is going over your head because we are currently in a place where we are individually rebuilding our spiritual habits after maybe a year of unideal spiritual habits. And we're very much trying to rebuild our faith community here at Big Sky Christian Fellowship after the difficulties of this past year. So there's a lot of things that our present situation has in common with this great rebuilding effort in Ezra and Nehemiah, both as individuals, but also as a church body. So what I'd like to do for the next minute or two is just ask you guys to individually reflect on what we've gone through in the last year, what you've gone through in the last year, the lows, the hardships, and what you might have in common with these historical figures in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and so many of the Old Testament prophets. I'm not suggesting that God created COVID to punish us. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that our situation of the last year, it just has a lot in common with these Old Testament stories. Let me give you four quick things to help us feel a connection to the people in today's story. First of all, we've both experienced interrupted worship. When the Babylonians came in, they burned down the temple. And in the Jewish culture, worship happened in the temple. So for two or three or four generations, no Israelites worshipped. Now, if your faith is important to you, and the children that you raise, and the grandchildren that you raise, can you imagine being totally interrupted from worship for three or four generations? Because that's what the characters in today's story experienced. And that's what many of us have gone through in the last year. Maybe you had health issues that precluded you from worshiping. 
Uh, there's any number of reasons why people did not attend worship as frequently as they had in the past, and so that's maybe a connection point that we have to the people in today's story. How about this? In the exile, people were displaced. And as you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see all these lists of families that came back into the land. And that, of course, means that they were all driven out. And probably everybody here has a family member that came and lived with you during the pandemic. Maybe they just wanted to get out of the cities. Maybe they couldn't pay their rent. Um, maybe there were health concerns. But we certainly all know the feeling of being displaced or cut off from people that we wanted to visit in this last year. I know my father for about 13 months was in a nursing home and no visitors were allowed at all. Maybe you guys can relate. Maybe you were cut off from loved ones because of the situations affiliated with the pandemic. I mentioned a week or so ago that uh, before the pandemic started, one out of 10 Americans expressed that they experienced some level of depression or anxiety and recent studies have said that during this pandemic year, the numbers have gone up to 4 out of 10 people. So, do you guys know at least 10 people? Because if you do, probably 4 of them have been experiencing depression and anxiety. And how about one final connection point? The reason why God's people were driven out of the land was because they violated the covenant, and they did so with idolatry and injustice. Can you guys think what the main headlines have been as you've turned on the news in the last year? 2019, 2020 have been all about people in our country calling out for justice. And, and maybe not every story you would consider uh, merited, but surely you've had time in the last year to reflect on that question of, is this a just country? Am I a just person? Just like the people in this story have been contemplating. And how about this? The other thing that God's people were exiled from the land for was idolatry. And we don't like to talk about having idols in modern-day uh, America, but this is a fascinating question to ask. Is there anything that used to stir your heart? Is there anything that just really used to make you feel alive that got taken away during COVID? Maybe going to the movies. Maybe watching pro sports before the leagues got shut down. Maybe you love to travel and go to other countries and all of a sudden those countries weren't letting Americans in. Maybe you just love to unwind with a day of shopping and the malls were closed. Maybe you love to go to the bars and they were closed. Maybe you love to have your kid be in a special activity, a special sport, and those were shut down as well. And so it gives us a nice reflection point to maybe weigh if there were things that had become idols to us that God allowed us to reevaluate in this last year. Well, thank you for your attention going through section one. I just hope everybody feels connected to the Israelites in the moment that we're talking about in today's text because Ezra and Nehemiah are all about when the masks come off and people are allowed to gather again and they're able to rebuild Jerusalem. And we now find ourselves in an exciting place where we as a church and you as individuals, we can do those things that we love again. We can travel, we can shop, we can gather together at church, we can sing. We can do all those things that had been limited for so long. And so just like we asked that question before, why would God allow the Israelites to be exiled? 
I'd like you guys, if you're not already, thinking about that question. Why would God allow us to go through the hardships that we went through in this last year? What was he trying, perhaps, to accomplish in our lives? And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to just wrap up our teaching time today by pointing out probably the main three encouraging things that God accomplishes in Ezra and Nehemiah through the exile. And since our situations are so similar, maybe we can look at the encouraging things that God did for his people in Ezra and Nehemiah, and we can be encouraged that God intends to do the same things in our life today. So I would suggest that the first thing is this. I've been reading Ezra and Nehemiah for the last couple of weeks, and three things jumped out to me that I think they're hard things, but they're encouraging things. And the first one is this. Even though the exile was long and difficult, lasting many generations, the re-entry led to the rediscovery of Scripture. So if you guys would, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. And keep in mind, God's people, many of them, they've been living in a foreign place for generations. They didn't really have books back then. Uh, We have evidence that probably scrolls of uh, the first four or five books of the Bible were read when people went to the temple. But of course, there's no temple and there's no books. So two or three generations of God's people really didn't know anything about what we would consider the Bible. They were broken off. They were detached from God. And then in Nehemiah 8, 1 to 9, We have this beautiful moment of when God's people remember Scripture or experience it for the first time. Can you guys imagine what it would be like to feel like exiles, to feel isolated, to feel cut off from God, to feel forgotten by God? And then all of a sudden you realize that there's this lengthy letter that God has written for your conduct and of His love for you and how we're supposed to live. So... Let's read through the rediscovery of God's word here in Nehemiah 8, 1-9. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together at one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And on that first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon, and he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And then I'll uh, skip down here to verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. In other words, these people that just felt so cut off and lonely and isolated and detached from God, they heard Scripture read aloud and they realized that God had always been with them. God always had a plan for them. He had never forsaken them and it made them weep to be remembered of all that Scripture had instructed for them. A lot of biblical scholars uh, theorize that the exile was actually when the Old Testament was constructed in the way that we think of it. Right? If you think about like 1 Kings and 1 Samuel, there's stories of all these kings, but they're terrible. 
And nobody in Israel is really doing what they're supposed to at that time. So I think we can theorize that they weren't really people of the word. They weren't really people of scripture back in that era. But now that they come out of the exile, they hear God's word and they're weeping. And this is also historically when some of the earliest Old Testament manuscripts are popping up. In other words, they treasured God's word so much during this time that they started to write down all the things that had just previously been oral tradition. The Bible as we know it, the Old Testament as we know it, is now in the hands of the people because the absence of that connection with God led to their desire to embrace it more. I hope that in this last year of hardship, you guys have discovered a re-embrace of Scripture. There's been times in the past, around New Year's, when people are like, hey, would you be interested in reading through the Bible with me this year? And I think to myself, nope, uh, the, the, the Bulls are having a really good season, right? Going to be a lot of games I'm going to have to be watching. Or, uh, man, there's like three or four movies that people have recommended to me. I've got a couple books on the shelf. In other words, like, no way. Am I going to commit to reading through the Bible because I just have too much going on? But maybe you guys are like me and in this last year you've experienced that those things that used to be distractions have been taken away. And as you've opened up your Bible a little bit more frequently, you've re-embraced it as a way that God instructs us on a day-to-day basis. I have a slide or two up here that just has a couple of contrasting images of how I think people look at reading scripture, okay? And I'll explain this. This is like a Girl Scout uniform. You could have also had a a brownie uniform, a Boy Scout uniform. When a pastor starts talking about reading your Bible, I think a lot of Christians secretly in their mind think to themselves, okay, maybe I'll read a little bit of my Bible and that'll be a good work. And that'll be a good work that I can put on my vest. And then when I'm around, like my other friends that are Christians, they'll know that I'm just a little bit more churchy than them because I've got the Bible reading badge because I've just done a little bit more reading than everybody else. And if we're honest, sometimes that's what our brain responds to when somebody says, be somebody who reads Scripture. We're like, yeah, it's one more good thing that I can be proud of, that I can display to others. And there's definitely been times in my life when that's how I've thought incorrectly of reading scripture. But here's another image. Do you guys remember those Vietnam radio men? Imagine you're in this squadron and you're walking through the jungle. Like who's the most dangerous person? Who's the most who's at the greatest risk? It's the radio man. The snipers would always try to take out and kill the radio man first because of the tactical advantage that that radio gave that squadron, right? Because if you can communicate with headquarters, they can give you new instructions. They can give you new intelligence. They can redirect you to attack from a new place. They can give you a source of encouragement. You know, in the movies, they're like, just keep on marching over that hill, boys, and that chopper will be waiting for you, right? It's actually how you can get the coordinates to where you'll be safe. So in this last year, I've started to think of reading Scripture less in that first way and more in this second way. Like we, in 2019, if you're like me, it's, it's been a year of battle. It's been a really hard year. And opening up Scripture and, and, and hearing from God through those readings is a way to get encouragement, a way to get redirection, a, a, a way to be challenged, and a way to hear from headquarters. 
So the first thing I want to challenge you guys of is this. Maybe even up till today, you've still thought of that call to read Scripture in that first way. And maybe you're like, I don't need another merit badge. I don't need another thing to feel good about. But I just want you guys to know that uh, the Israelites re-entered the land and rediscovered a love of Scripture. Not because it was one more thing to display, but because it was a reminder of God's love and direction for them day by day. And I hope as we as a church and you as individuals come out of this difficult pandemic year, that God stirs your heart to re-embrace Scripture, just like he did for God's people in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. What's another way that we see God rebuild his people in bigger and better ways than Ezra and Nehemiah? second one is this. For two or three generations, the Israelites had a shortage of abundance. They didn't have extra things. They didn't have fellowship. And they didn't feel God's presence. And sometimes a shortage of something for a prolonged period of time just makes you want it more. The first two years that my wife and I were dating each other, we lived in different towns. We didn't actually live in the same town until about a month before we were married. So the first two or three years that we were married, we would just sit there and eat dinner and look at each other with smiles on our faces, right? Because like the absence of something often makes you want more of it, right? And now if you guys see us on a date, like down in a restaurant, we'll just both be on our phones, not paying attention to each other. Just kidding. So the absence of abundance and fellowship in God's felt presence It made the Israelites want more of those things. And then when they were back in the land and they had the ability to experience abundance and fellowship with one another and God's presence, they committed to it and they took advantage of it. You know, we haven't been able to get together for meals as a church this last year. When we were having a hard day, we weren't really able to just gather in our homes with three or four other people from the church. I hope that the shortage of those things made you want it more. And I hope that now it's a possibility we can all commit to enjoying fellowship and the blessings that God gives us and His presence more than we maybe took for granted in the past. Um, If you have a chance, I don't think I have time to read it now, but if you read through Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 to 18, it talks about this incredible moment where the Israelites are back in Jerusalem at the site where the temple is going to be rebuilt and they are they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And we've talked about that maybe twice already this year. So the Feast of Tabernacles was a holiday that Jewish people celebrate to remember that specific moment when they were wandering through the, the, uh, the desert and uh, they were all living in these just shelters, that they would, these little booths that they would make out of palm branches and, 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 and sticks at nighttime. And, and the, the light of God at night and the cloud during the day guided the Israelites. So if you think about what this represents, they're remembering the time when just a glimpse of God led them through the desert towards the promised land. And now they're in the promised land making these booths to remember what it felt like to follow God towards the promised land. Now they're in the promised land. They're rebuilding the temple. And the absence of something made them just appreciate it and want it even more. So I just want to ask you guys, now that we can gather, 
Now that we can hear from our worship team without masks, now that we can see each other's faces, will you commit to enjoying the fellowship and the teaching and the worship that we maybe took for granted in 2018 and 2015? And now we know what a blessing it is to have it. Will you prioritize blessing and fellowship in God's presence moving forward? And the final thing that I want to point out that should be encouraging to us through this great rebuilding story in Ezra and Nehemiah is this. By telling the story as another exodus, we're reminded of the repetitive problems that our sin brings, as well as God's faithfulness to reestablish covenant. So let me explain that maybe in a little bit more everyday language. Sometimes the the storytellers in the Bible use specific details, and when we read through it, it seems kind of obscure, and we're like, well, I would never have said it that way. But it's because they're trying to remind us of previous stories in the Bible. And as Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of this rebuilding of Jerusalem, they use a couple details that remind us that this was not the first time that God led his people into the promised land. For example, in Ezra 1.1, The story starts off by reminding us that it was the king of Persia who sent the Israelites into the promised land. You remember in the story of the Exodus that it was actually Pharaoh that finally sent Moses and the Israelites towards the promised land? So that's a detail that is showing us this is like another Exodus story. In Ezra 1.3, it reminds us that they're actually going back into the promised land. So they're going back to the exact same place that they went to in the first Exodus story. And in Exodus 1.6, it has this detail that they actually went around and asked the Persians for gold and silver to take with on their journey, just like it tells us in Exodus that they plundered the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were so glad to get rid of the Israelites that they gave them gold and silver and cloth just so that they would finally leave. And in both instances... Those riches, those treasures, were used in the construction of the tabernacle or the temple. So there's just many details throughout this story of how it it was something that God had done before. And I think it should be a great encouragement to us as we are going through all these things that feel new and unprecedented to us, that it's nothing that God hasn't done before. Let me close with this story. At my last church... Our most dynamic ministry by far was the moms group. And one day a week, these, these young mothers who were suffering postpartum depression and just all the difficulties of motherhood would come to our church and they'd be dragging, you know, two or three kids and they'd look like Ralphie's brother from the Christmas story with, you know, a hundred hats and gloves and just think of the hassle it is to be a mother with young children. And they'd start to take off all their snow clothes And they'd get to drop them off in the nursery. And the women who were running the nursery were often retired women who no longer had kids at home uh, themselves. And then these young mothers would get to get a cup of coffee and go sit with other young mothers, have a Bible study before the whole group would get together and enjoy a lunch. And at times this group would get up to over 50 people, which is a lot in a small town for a mother's group. And they would always rant and rave about how spiritually enriching it was and how encouraging of a time it was and how much they got out of it. And one day I was thinking to myself, what the heck? 
Like, they don't say those things when they come to church on Sunday. Like, I'm probably a little bit more articulate of a teacher than, the, than the, the moms that are teaching this Bible study? Like, what is it that's so dynamic about this particular group that we're not even experiencing on Sunday mornings? And my best answer to that is the multi-generational nature of the ministry. When you are a 32-year-old mother and you think nobody in the world could possibly know what you're going through, and then you get to hand your crying kid to a 72-year-old woman, that's been there, that's done that, and got out of it, and, 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 and is thriving. That just brings a level of encouragement that, that wouldn't come if some pastor told you everything was going to be okay, right? And if you're having a, a problem with your husband or something else, and there's somebody who's been there and who's done that and has gotten through it and can give you comfort, you're reminded that there's really nothing that you can go through that God hasn't led his people through before. And so the final encouragement from Ezra and Nehemiah is that it's a hard thing, but it's nothing that God hasn't already led his people through before. I definitely have freak out moments where I'm just like, how, how are my family and I going to thrive in this town after a pandemic year? How is Big Sky Christian Fellowship going to get back to or surpass places that are levels that it's been in the past? How, how as a shepherd am I going to help our flock get to new places that they haven't been to in the past? And what an encouragement that by telling the Ezra and Nehemiah story in a way that reminds us of the Exodus story, that God's not asking us as individuals or a church to do anything that he hasn't led his people through before. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and wrap up our service. And as they do, let me just offer up a conclusion and a summary statement, and it's this. The task of rebuilding something is often incredibly discouraging. We think that's going to take a lot of time and energy just to do something that we had previously already enjoyed in the past. But of course, the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah remind us that God often rebuilds things better than they've been in the past. God's people come out of this with a rebuilt covenant. Their relationship to him as a nation is stronger than it's ever been. God rebuilds that better and stronger than it had been in the past. I think there's at least three similarities that we can take from this story for encouragement, and they're this. God wants to use your hardships this last year for you to re-embrace your commitment to Scripture. I can pray and think that I heard from God, and then a day later I'm just like, no, that was just a crazy thought that I had. But when we read Scripture and understand the context of what God is doing with his people, those are principles that we can always trust. Those are things that are always true. I want you guys to re-embrace Scripture. It's not just a merit badge to put on your sash. It's how we hear from headquarters. It's how we get redirected from God. Secondly, let this last year of being lonely remind us of how much we need each other. And if it's a Sunday afternoon and you find yourself hiking, look at your watch and be like, I still have time to get to church, right? We need each other. Big Sky Christian Fellowship needs you. And finally, remember that we're not going through anything that God's people haven't gone through before. Let that be an encouragement as he rebuilds us individually and as a church 
bigger and stronger than we've been in the past. And let's just thank God for the blessings of how he does build things better and stronger as we wrap up with this final song.